Welcome to the Expansive CEO Podcast. I'm your host, Hannah Chapman, founder of Expansive CEO and X Squared Wealth Planning. Buckle in as we explore how to create true prosperity and build a business and a life that expands beyond yourself and makes a dent in the universe. Hello, everyone. It is Thursday, August 10th right now at 4.55 p.m. And we are recording for Investment Friday with Brad Haynes, the Chief Investment Officer of Juncture Wealth Strategies. So we've got a lot of stuff to talk about today, Brad. We had we started having a conversation before and I said, like, hold your horses. We need to actually record this because it's really good stuff. So let's get into it. What's going on in the markets this week? And then we're going to talk about inflation and jobs. Yeah. So the markets have stabilized a little bit this week from last week, where we started to see a lot of volatility because of uh, the Fitch downgrade of the U.S. debt and people just getting a little more uh, nervous about the equity market having done so well, at least on the index basis um, year to date. So they started to take some chips off the table. Generally, August, September, more volatile months of the year anyways. So it's it's something that you saw people start to pull back a little bit. This week has kind of stabilized a little bit more. We've had some uh, good economic data came out today. Uh, the U.S. Consumer Price Index, which is another measure of inflation, um, came out just slightly more than it was in June for July. Um, but most of the increase, most of the inflation rate came from shelter inflation, mm. which we know from subsequent data the past couple of months, rents and housing prices have moderated significantly. So we know that because, because again, there's a lagged effect with that shelter inflation. So we know it's going to be coming down. So the market said, hey, that's great. (laughs) We know inflation is going to be moderating quite a bit in the next few months. So we don't have to worry about future interest rate increases. At least at this point, that's what the market was uh, digesting a little bit. Mm, interesting. And so I say we just like dive straight into it. Um, Perfect. Because you just mentioned more interest rate increases. And some of the news that has been coming out has been around, you know, um, especially Elizabeth Warren and um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez grilling Jay Powell about interest rates and jobs data. And so when we, you know, the the party line is that if more people have jobs, if we have less unemployment, if unemployment numbers are quote unquote too low, then that means too many people, quote unquote, too many people have jobs and that's going to cause more inflation in the economy. So one of the ways that the Fed has been trying to fight inflation in that way is to raise interest rates and see more unemployment, higher unemployment percentages. And the arguments that are coming um, from, you know, from lawmakers and from other people who are asking the same question is, is that real? Is it real that we have to see higher unemployment rates? Do we have to pretty much put people out of work in order to see inflation stay at a reasonable level. Um, So we started, that was the conversation we started to have where I said, no, we need to stop and record this. So tell me your take on that. And, and what do you, what do you see? 
So my take is yes. How's that? Are we done? Just kidding. No. Um, so no, there's a, there's a lot of difference, and it, it is confusing for a lot of investors, lawmakers, policymakers to look back and say, "Hey, we had low un- unemployment at a much different, much lower uh, inflation, much lower interest rates, and now here we are. We have much higher interest rates. We have similarly low." unemployment, do we need to have that come up so the wage pressures abate? Um, And and to a certain extent, um, we will. And and the reason why is because we've always had inflation in the United States. Inflation has always existed, depending on your spending mix of of products and services that you as a family or household um, consume. And so your inflation rate um, has always been there, particularly people who spend a little bit more on uh, college, uh, spend a little bit more on health care. Their inflation rate has exceeded the national average a lot in the last 20 years. Where where we get into where we where we benefited was prior to 2016, we had free trade. And in free trade, what happened is because we were manufacturing products overseas and then importing them, essentially what we were doing is we're importing deflation in those areas, which is why, you know, you bought a a computer, a laptop computer 20 years ago, and the laptop computer you probably just purchased was if not similarly priced a little cheaper, but yet much, much, much more capable Mm -hmm. than it was 20 years ago. So that is massive deflation. You're getting a product far superior and you're pay- basically paying the same thing than what you paid 20 years ago. That's a massive amount of deflation. So that deflation in consumer products and, and some services offset a lot of the inflation that we were experiencing in other parts of the economy. Well, mm-hmm. you can do that under free trade. NAFTA, um, the, the free trade uh, agreement with uh, the Asian countries, all of those, uh, we could do that. We could import that deflation. Well, in 2016, 2017, when President Trump started putting tariffs on products that were manufactured overseas coming into the United States, essentially what that did is put a gate up. Mm. And now we're not we're not importing deflation any longer. There's no place for our domestic inflation to be bled out to through the trade window. So that's a that's an important aspect is now we have inflation that we're stuck with unless we get rid of the gates, the tariffs, which more likely than not, that's politically untenable. So we have to now deal with the inflation within our domestic economy itself. And to do that, we need to have wage inflation come down. Now, one of the critical factors that's missing in that of what AOC and um Uh, Senator Warren talked about was productivity, because you can have fewer numbers of workers. And if your productivity is growing, it it makes it all work. You can have low unemployment, high productivity, high incomes, and that can all work and have low inflation. Um, We productivity the past few years has been not great. The productivity growth. However, with how innovative we are in the United States economy, 
we are starting to see more productivity coming about and it's starting to re- to grow again in productivity. And that is going to solve a lot of these problems uh, from a resource standpoint. Interesting. So I want to pull in another statistic that maybe that I have been hearing about um, in, you know, what we want to call the real economy, right? Sometimes that's that's how we hear it. Like on the ground, what are people experiencing? Yep. And that other figure is real wage inflation. Like what's our purchasing power, you know, based on what actual wages are now versus 30 years ago compared to inflation. And that number, I feel like that's where the big squeeze is also happening for consumers is that while they're talking about, you know, being worried about wage inflation, we're not actually feeling that on an economy-wide level. Like household workers are not necessarily feeling that their wages are going up enough to keep up with the rate of housing inflation in particular. Like that's a huge one, right? So what, I, I feel like that's where the biggest disconnect is happening, right? So we're we're actually experiencing, um, and I, I'm saying we, but I, I just mean like collectively, the collective, you know, United States of America, most workers feeling like they're not um, keeping up with what they need on a regular basis. And then hearing in the news that, well, actually more of you need to be unemployed because wages are rising too high. Yeah. So there's, there's, there's a fundamental disconnect in policy versus experience. Yeah. It's all about the messaging. It, it's terrible. It's terrible. Economists do a terrible job communicating with the average U.S. consumer and how and worker um, and, and helping them understand that the conundrum, what they're going through, because the average U.S. worker just went through a massive squeeze on their incomes, their real purchasing power. Because, you know, if in June 22, if you were sitting there and if you got a 10% raise, annual raise that year, you just kept, you just kept status quo. Mm-hmm. Your real purchasing power didn't go up and it didn't go down. You just barely matched it. And actually, I would argue after taxes, you're still net negative. But most people didn't get 10% raises. Most people received 5 to 6%, 7% raises. Well, if inflation's 9% and you're getting a 7% raise, your real purchasing power just contracted by 2%. You're worse off than you were. So it's one of the real dynamics of since 2020 to 2023 is that purchasing power, that real purchasing power that adds to our standard of living has been very, very rare and very few and far between. And so this year, as inflation comes down, you're still going to see wage growth. I mean, wage growth is always there. It just, over time, it either goes up or down or down a little. Um, And with what I would expect, some of the Teamsters and UAW, um, the Union for the Auto Workers, striking very good deals um, with the companies that they represent, or striking deals with the companies for the workers they represent, that is going to add quite a bit to 
that wage growth over time. But it's all moderate and it's something that the companies can um, afford to a certain extent. Um, but again, that is going to broaden out and hopefully that, well, not hopefully, it will, that real purchasing power will return to the positive uh, for most, for the average U.S. worker. Hmm. So how do we, how do we navigate that if we, if we pull that into, you know, the main audience um, listening to this podcast, which is typically small business owners, right? That's, that's majority of who I'm talking to on a daily basis. Um, And a lot of them are, you know, service-based business owners. Some of them are like critical services, like we need these services in our lives, um, but still they're then relying on purchasing power of their clientele to yep. be able to afford their services. So how do you see um, the ripple effect or you know, what does that mean in your mind? So uh, I think for business owners, it becomes a better calculus for them. Um, the past couple of years with higher inflation, Hopefully, they've been in this situation where they could increase their prices, and they've done so. So their revenues have been going up to compensate for a lot of the increased expenses. And generally, what happens is labor, particularly if it's a service-based business and your biggest expense is employees and the cost of compensation, generally, those go up slower than what your revenue could, could go up in inflationary times. Okay. I mean, that's the whole point is in inflation, um, the power of pricing is on the side of the business as opposed to this on the side of the consumer. Um, and so that's when generally prices go up in businesses. Um, our business, we didn't do that um, just because we're in a different, we have a different competitive dynamic. But in a lot of businesses, they were able to do that, increase those prices to compensate for increased costs. Now, that said, rolling into 23 here, you're going to have um, a lot of a lot of if you haven't already, you're going to have a lot of employees asking for extraordinary raises. They're going to ask for raises to help compensate for their increased costs. Um, if they're renting, obviously, they're they're definitely getting hit hit on that front. Um, but what also is going to happen is a lot of other costs are going to moderate. Maybe the rental of your space is going to become much less onerous than it was a year ago or two years ago. Deep, so, so that moderating a little bit. Other types of costs. Um, I just heard uh, uh, on the news, um, healthcare costs actually have moderated in certain areas for certain companies from a from an employee benefit standpoint which surprised me because I haven't experienced that, but uh, other other companies have. And so that is an area where they can pick up some savings as well. But you can also go back and say, hey, the labor market isn't as tight as it once was. So those wages you're going to be asked to give, those raises, probably won't be in the range of of what past inflation has been. They might be four to five percent as opposed to two to three but they're not going to be asking for 10 unless they've, they've gone years and years without a, a pretty decent raise. So the cost standpoint is going to moderate. 
your revenue, your ability to increase costs or increase prices are probably maxed out. So that's going to remain stable. Certain industries, you might have to reduce it a little bit. But really, on a net-net basis, you're still going to be uh, still be ahead. You might contract a little bit on your gross margin, a little bit on your profits, but it should rebound significantly in 24 as we look out as it, as overall inflation continues to decline. What that really means to you as a business owner is my costs are going down, which mm-hmm. is great as a percentage of my revenue, and I just have to maintain my my revenue line or grow my revenue revenue line, and my profits will expand in you know going out tw- into 2024. So that brings me over to another conversation that I had today that was super interesting and that we talked about a little bit. Um, And I wanted to bring um, some of the changes in the SBA loan program into the conversation too, because um, my my friend Josh from Colorado um, asked this question today um, or was wondering about it. Like, that he had seen that there were some changes in the pipeline um, for the SBA that had just been approved. And SBA is the Small Business Administration um, through the federal government. And so, yeah, I'd love to hear your take on that as well, because it was it was interesting. Just I'll say that I always find it interesting um, that as we talk about expanding access to capital that's what they're they're trying to say um that they're launching a business loan program that will improve uh make improvements to expand access to capital starting on august 1st 2023 um and i'm going to read a little bit of it here it says today's loan program updates build on administrator isabella casillas guzman's previous announcements that address long-standing persistent capital access gaps for rural veteran, women, and minority-owned businesses. The loan program improvements will increase small businesses' ability to access funding to start up and grow through a broader network of lenders with streamlined lender procedures. The new simplified guidelines for lenders are part of three updated standard operating procedures, including updated origination policies and procedures, lender participation requirements, and 7A loan servicing and liquidation requirements. For example, SBA is providing additional flexibility in credit criteria for loans under $500,000 to support SBA loans in reaching more creditworthy small businesses. So when I read that, I was like, oh, yeah, that sounds great. And then when I said that to you, you were like, that doesn't mean anything. So tell me why. Well, I didn't say it meant <laughs> anything. I just meant that it depends on how the, the, the regulation is written and the program is written because Oftentimes, uh, politicians attempt to do something really good. They have a great intent. They, for example, this is to, to provide funding for small businesses that may not be able to get access to capital any other way. Mm-hmm. Um, and as long as you are, you know, in meet certain criteria, you're willing to participate or you're able to participate in this program. Part of the problem with that is, is they're going to talk about credit worthiness. And if you remember um, what everybody ran, like President Obama, when he ran in 2007, 2008, one of the big things he did was he pilloried the banks for lending to below investment grade individuals. Okay. But that was actually mandated by Congress in 1977. 
mm. that they had to. So all of this is a, is really, really good intent, but the implementation is really, really critically key. Um, a lot of this stop started in 1977 where Congress and the administration decided that it was very, very important for everybody to own a home. Okay. And that's a great intent. I think everybody in the, in America should have the opportunity to, to buy a home and to live in their home and all that stuff. That's a great intent. It's a great goal. It's part of the American dream. However, what they did is they put into place the Community Reinvestment Act of 1977, which stated that if you as a bank are taking deposits in a particular geographical area, you have to make a certain amount of loans in that area. Okay. So if you think about that, that's a makes sense. Really makes sense. You know, if you're if you're taking deposits from someone, you know, putting them together and loaning it out to someone in that area can really help bolster the economic growth in that particular geographical area. But as we know, not all geographical areas are creditworthy. Okay. They just aren't. There are some neighborhoods that struggle from a credit worthiness from a banking standpoint. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, but because they are under this law, they have to lend. So someone in that area may get a loan, even if they're not as credit worthy, because the bank needs to show they're in complying, compliance with that law. Now, fast forward, you have Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, they're now purchasing these subprime, uh, well, subprime mortgages, um, but it happens with car loans, it happens with credit cards, it happens with business loans, all of those types of things. So you fast forward, uh, you know, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac decide they're going to buy these. And because they they have higher yields, right, because these are lower credit rating type individuals or households, they have to pay a little bit higher interest rate. Okay, mm -hmm. So now you get into the, is this predatory lending and that type of thing? Well, assuming that it wasn't, let's assume that at this point, in this analogy, it's, it's not predatory lending. But Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac say, hey, these, these are paying us tons more. So give us as much as you can handle. Like we will do a ton of these. And so sure enough, banks and mortgage brokers and mortgage banks started stuffing that channel full of these subprime mortgages. And we saw the end of that cycle with 2008, 2009, mm. which, you know, arguably almost took down the U.S. economy and certain European countries. So it's one of those things that good intentions have, there's a law of unintended, con unintended consequences, which sometimes can, can really, um, can really play out, unfortunately. So I, I, I think it's a good intent. I hope they wrote it right. And I hope they implement it right because I think it's needed. Um, I mean, we've talked about this past couple of weeks that banks have been tightening their lending standards. Mm -hmm. Why are they tightening their lending standards? Well, because we're going into a slowing economy. Interest rates are going up. Fewer and fewer people are considered credit worthy from a bank standpoint. Um, you know, one week I can be considered credit worthy by a bank. And the next week, if they tighten their standards, I may drop off that list. I may be unfinanceable. I may not be able to get the loan. So it's an it, it's it it's really critical in how they make that determination 
of who gets these loans. But again, it's a good intent. So the thing that just um, kind of clicked for me there is, you know, when you say, well, how can I be credit worthy one week and not credit worthy the next week? what the the piece that fell into place was like, oh, well, yeah, if interest rates go up, we think we can think about that on a mortgage, right? If you have a house that costs $350,000 and, you know, the literal monthly mortgage payment is vastly different if you get that mortgage at 3% versus 7%. Very different. <laughs> it's a huge difference. And when the lending standards say, um, I can't remember the number off the top of my head, but you know, somewhere around 30%. We want to keep that mortgage under 30% of your household income. Well, at 3%, it might fit in perfectly. At 7%, it blows it out of the water. Correct. And so Correct. it's it's not that your financial situation changed at all, but literally the interest rate itself shifting has has made that loan unattainable. Yes. Yes. And that is that is where a lot of business owners are because small business owners, depending on the type of company they have, they might be AAA rated. They might be solid, no debt, lots of cash flow, cash on the balance sheet. Fantastic. Those are very few and far between in small businesses. They just are. Mm -hmm. um, more likely than not, usually small business is kind of straddling um, between credit worthy and, cre and non-credit worthy. Um, depending on the time of the cycle and all that in their, in their business. So to me, I think it's important just to uh, keep that in mind that, that banks are tightening standards. I hope this helps. I hope this helps a lot of people because today is the time where a lot of small business owners do need access to capital um, to run their businesses. And, and I hope, I hope that that will help a number of them out there. So the thing that I want to mention again, I just, I think it's fascinating and I don't think it gets pulled into the conversation nearly enough um, that the things we're experiencing right now come from, like you said, the, the unintended consequences of actions taken, you know, seven years ago in the case of the tariffs that we talked about earlier and actions taken, um, what's that, like 45 years ago. In the you know, case of you know 1977, you know how that we didn't see that that was going to happen, but following the trail, it starts to make sense. And so that yeah, I, I don't I don't have an answer um, for that right now. I just think it's really fascinating to to think about things, to zoom out, and then see that oh this this happened because, and we have to look at wider timeframes than just what's happening right this very second in order to make these, you know, more informed and sound policy decisions. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting uh, point because um, there's a number of seminal books I've, I've read about booms and busts, uh, manias, depressions, all of those types of market and economic conditions and always, 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 that is one thing that is imperative in them is ex excessive credit growth. That's what fuels asset booms and busts, okay? Um, and so anytime I see an area 
where there's excessive leverage growth, I start to look at what asset it's purchasing and I try to watch that asset very closely and uh, to make money on the on the upside and the downside because it's it's definitely coming. Mm. Interesting. And one of the things that we've talked about a few times um, this year, because it's been such a prescient issue, are the regional banks and commercial real estate. Is that another spot that we're watching that at Juncture? We're watching that very closely. Um, I've been actually talking to a number of my friends and and other uh, coworkers, uh, colleagues who are at real estate investment firms that own office buildings, multifamily, just to get a sense of what they're experiencing um, with some of the refinancing, some of the purchases they're buying, um, just watching because uh, as it stands right now, I am pretty concerned that uh, we're 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 gonna that there's gonna be a number of defaults coming in the in the office uh, commercial real estate space. Mm-hmm. Um, and hopefully the banks can that you know own those loans can handle that type of hit. Um, but there's a lot of transactions right now that are going on that are not below market, but they're definitely below values a year or two ago, uh, de- significantly below. Um, so yeah, so it's it's one of the years I'm watching very very closely, um, and that there is a lot of risk in that in that market right now. All right. Well, I think we covered a lot of ground today. So we did. We did. <laughs> Always exciting, though. Right. Yeah. Um, any parting words for this week? Um, just that uh, just prepare for August and September to be volatile. It doesn't mean it's a bad time to invest. It just means. Have a longer term perspective than August to September you know, kind of invest periodically, you know, whether your dollar cost averaging into the market or whether you're fully invested, you know, just there's a lot of trading mechanisms that go on in August and September that have nothing to do with the actual health of the market or the actual health of the economy. So there's a lot of noisy trading going on in these months um, that will sort themselves out by October, November. So it's just one of those, these are just volatile months. So, um, you know, focus on back to school because we're just going into the season of spend mm-hmm. um, with back to school kicking off. And this is the beginning of the season of spend in the U.S., um, which culminates with New Year's Day. Between now and New Year's Day, back to school, New Year's Day, a lot of spending happens. And and I think we're going to see much, much more spending than is expected. Interesting. Well, we will check on that as the economic data comes out every month, I think. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you for being here again today, Brad. Thank you. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening and be sure to like and subscribe. And again, if anything resonated with you from this episode, I would love to hear from you. Email me at Hannah, H-A-N-N-A-H, at ExpansiveCEO.com and tell me about it. And if you're ready for your greatest expansion, you can find ways to work with me at ExpansiveCEO.com and at XSquaredWealthPlanning.com. That's X, the numeral two, WealthPlanning.com. 
So until next time, remember that there is enough, you are enough, and your birthright in this lifetime is to be expansive. <laughs>